Hello, this is Vic Nitti, Chair of the Office of Education for the American Urological Association, and I would like to welcome you to another AUA Office of Education podcast. Today, it is my pleasure to have as my co-host, Dr. John Davis, who is Associate Professor at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas, and is also the Director of the Prostate Cancer Surgery Program at MD Anderson. Dr. Davis is also a member of our Education Council's New Technologies and Imaging Committee, and that's especially appropriate for the topic of our podcast today, which is on focal therapy for the treatment of prostate cancer. John, welcome. Thanks, Vic. Glad to be here. We know for years that the definitive treatment for prostate cancer has been surgery and essentially radiation. Now we have focal therapies, focal therapies that can target the tumor and treat only the tumor. Uh, John, I want to discuss these therapies. And first of all, I'll ask you a very general question. Why would one do focal therapy as opposed to removing the whole prostate gland or treating the whole prostate gland? Well, thanks, Vic. Uh, great intro. The, I mean, the, the quick answer to that has always been trying to find basically a sweet spot, as I like to call it, between active surveillance, when you identify a cancer that's non-lethal, uh, versus the quality of life associated with standard therapy. So it's, it's often driven by concerns of erectile dysfunction, uh, to some degree, the urinary side effects of treatment. And there's, there's clearly an emerging or identified group of men that although they could do active surveillance and that would be a guidelines-based decision, some of them feel like they're just waiting on the inevitable to happen and are attracted to the concept of doing something proactive. It could be focal therapy. Many of the other questions in the clinic are slightly different but may revolve around is, are there preventative medications or, you know, often we talk about diet and exercise, et cetera. So now focal therapy um, may be sought after in, in certain patients, per, and we'll discuss the indications for it, uh, but perhaps somebody with a, a, a lower uh, grade, lower stage cancer might choose focal therapy. But again, we'll talk about that in a moment. But how do we compare focal therapy to, say, active surveillance and then to standard therapies? So surveillance has, of course, mostly been worked out in low-grade prostate cancer. Um, and you can almost identify three somewhat distinct groups. There's the very low-risk prostate cancer group that has a low PSA density, one or two small cores of Gleason 6 verified. They have a fairly low rate of progression. Uh, and in fact, in older individuals, it's almost easier to sort of trans, transfer them to a, a less than active surveillance thing, although that's still vaguely uh, described. Then there's a slightly different entity of high volume Gleason 6. You know, I've even recently seen, seen some young men with, you know, eight or nine large cores. It's all Gleason 6 verified, verified by multiple pathologists. And they certainly have a higher risk of being upgraded if you were to do surgery. It's literally over 90% in those type cases. And then there are, of course, cases where there is verified but small volume Gleason 3 plus 4. 
many have published on this as being favorable intermediate risk as distinct from um, Gleason 4 plus 3 or high volume 3 plus 4. Now, Laurie Klotz's group, of course, has long enough follow-up and has shown data with some caution that the favorable intermediate risk group, if you give them enough time, they likely will progress in tumor volume and possibly stage. So those are some of the distinctions that urologists can make early on and then decide where focal therapy can fit. I would say as a quick take-home uh, lesson, the, one of the very first uh, categories of folks that can do focal therapy would be the intermediate group. So, John, if, if we're going to do focal therapy or consider focal therapy, is there sort of an ideal patient, a patient who maybe falls out of active surveillance or maybe just doesn't isn't comfortable with active surveillance um, and a patient who may not quote unquote need standard therapy who's who are the best candidates for focal therapy well i would tie some concepts together again with the active surveillance literature it would tell us a couple of important things one is it in the low-grade prostate cancer patients it's going to be difficult for focal therapy to show a cancer-related improvement, I mean, a hard cancer-related improvement, such as, you know, cancer-related mortality or metastatic progression. Now, you might be able to draw out a, more of a treatment-related endpoint. So, for example, there's some early literature on focal therapy versus surveillance, um, and the endpoint was who got future treatments and the, the focal therapy was able to cut down on, you know, a reasonably interesting percentage of people who went on to more definitive therapy. But when you went beyond that into metastatic uh, or other hard cancer out, outcomes, then of course, very difficult to show a difference. Be, be, you, mean, be, you mean between focal therapy and active surveillance? That's, and, that's correct. So, so you, can see, you can clearly draw an advantage on quality of life from focal therapy versus definitive therapy, but it's a little trickier to draw a difference between focal therapy and active surveillance at sort of, you know, sexual function, bladder function. There are going to be minor differences and very difficult to show cancer-related outcomes. However, if you then redefine that in sort of the favorable intermediate risk group, then you do have some potential to show a real cancer-related a benefit given that the long-term surveillance patients have shown you know that over time many of them if they're young and healthy enough would likely progress at some point so is it fair to say that the intermediate risk groups may be the most appropriate people for focal therapy that's a good take-home message and there's been a number of experts in the focal therapy community that have done their own sort of like delphi you know, um, conference methodology, and that tends to be the main take-home message from, from those efforts and the papers that they've written. And as best as we know with the data that we have available to us today, are there patients who we clearly should steer away from focal therapy and towards standard therapies? Well, 
Another important take-home message is that all of this should be done on a clinical trial registry or some other type of construct uh, moving forward until we get this type of data. If you look at uh, AUA guidelines, it just came out on prostate cancer. Uh, you know, there's a specific statement saying that focal therapies or HIFU are not standard of care options because comparative outcomes evidence is lacking. Now that said, because I, I do have uh, some case studies in this in, in the AUA course coming up next week, uh, is that just because there's a clinical trial option doesn't necessarily mean you have a license to then have unlimited inclusion criteria. Uh, and so we've had more than a handful of people move through our center that had pretty high volume Gleason 4 plus 3 with concerning MRIs for clinical T stage T3 cancer, um, who've gone through focal therapies. In one case, they went through it twice uh, and were up to, to lymph node metastatic progression within two years. Who knows if that's related to that therapy or would have happened anyway. But I think if you, if you push focal therapy into really more aggressive tumor types where even surgery and sometimes surgery and radiation are known to sometimes not be cured of long-term. Again, you're back to a situation where it's hard to really measure what you've accomplished with focal therapy. So I think it does have a fairly narrow indication where high-level evidence is definitely needed um, at this point. So I have a question for you. It's been my impression that when I hear Europeans speak at various meetings, they're much more likely to recommend focal therapy as an almost standard treatment for prostate cancer. Uh, am I, am I hearing that correctly? And how does, how do they differ, let's say from, from the way we look at things here in the United States? Uh, good question. And, and the interesting thing about that is in the last, as I sort of updated the literature search for this year's course, there's actually more definitive publications from collaborative European urologists actually now reinforcing the concept that this needs to be done on a trial or registry-based setting, you know, with designated experts. So I don't think there's, um, you know, any kind of published suggestion that this should just be out for general use and, and you know, put a marketing program around it and go to town on it. So I think that's that's a really important point is that we really haven't identified, at least today, the ideal patient for focal therapy. And as such, we need to be careful in choosing those patients and making them aware of some of the, the limitations of what we know about focal therapy. And of course, that's best done in a clinical trial setting so that ultimately, we can um, figure out who the best people are for this therapy if it's going to be something that's viable uh, moving into the future. Agreed, yes. So, you know, if, can you briefly just describe for us the types of focal therapy and just how it's done? Sure. Um, well, it, it's interesting that... Um, the conversations even started at our center in 06. John Ward is one of my colleagues that was interested in it early on. 
at that time, really the only, well, I mean, you could say there are multiple modalities, but the most commonly one looked at 10 years ago was cryotherapy. Um, and technically you had radiofrequency ablation and you certainly could do like brachytherapy with just a more limited implant um, dose. But moving on now, we're up to about seven different um, ablation technologies when you add HIFU, laser, photodynamics, irreversible electroporation. So that's really seven different ways. I think in the animal lab type setting, you can prove that most of these achieve cellular kill at their targeted areas. So there's less sort of debate about the ability to destroy targeted tissue. The bigger one that even came to light 10 years ago or more was just what would be the definition of focal therapy and is there a nomenclature there? And um, there's really kind of three recognized maps of focal therapy or, or even alterations in that word. The true nature of focal therapy, in my mind, actually is more consistent with lesion-directed therapy. You know, you can imagine, you know, a picture of a prostate with a little red circle on a tumor, and your treatment is going to go right at that circle. Um, some experts like Herb Lepore have talked about, okay, draw a centimeter around your target and, you know, for, for margin of error, and then that's your target. But beyond that, others have said that, well, you really need to treat the entire half of the prostate or hemiablation given multifocal tendency of this disease. And John Ward's old paper from British Journal a long time ago actually showed that if you really wanted to eliminate even the satellite or secondary tertiary type tumors, you would really have to treat the entire affected side plus the anterior half of the contralateral side. Uh, other, many have called that hockey stick planning. And in my mind, that's really, I would almost want to rename that subtotal treatment because it's not all that focal. You're now talking about treating three quarters or more of the gland, but it does potentially preserve one posterior lateral region um, that may help, you know, preserve erectile function uh, better than a whole gland treatment, for example. So those are kind of the, there's, so there's sort of separate issues of can you target, can you ablate, and then what is the actual target? Because depending on what you're talking about doing, that would affect how you are going to measure any kind of treatment recurrence that's in-field versus out-of-field. Does it matter what imaging modality you use to target the prostate? There's some interesting dialogues there because, for example, in the hockey stick cryotherapy, you're essentially doing that in the operating room under ultrasound, just like you would do whole gland cryo, but you just kind of scale it back. Some of the newer ideas, such as laser ablation, those have evolved as more of in-bore MRI treatments. I always found it an interesting construct hearing experts on this say that they may actually do the uh, the biopsies with a robotic arm fusion, you know, technology. But when they actually do the therapy, it's sort of freehand under the MRI, uh, aiming at a specific target with a margin of error. So those would be the most common MRI. Certainly, even if it's not used in the actual treatment delivery, would be uh, very critical for the the planning phase. Do we know if any particular 
technique or energy source is more effective or less morbid than another. For example, do we have any data to compare Haifu to cryo? Yeah, very limited. You never want to say absolutes like there's no data. There's a little bit of Haifu and cryo. None of it's high-level evidence. Uh, these are basically small series of sort of this versus that. Predominantly, these modalities have been studied independently or, or in sort of, you know, like dog lab kind of, uh, you know, treatments. You know, you ablate something, then you harvest it and study the histologic effects. The most predominant opinion that I read on it is that they're very comparable, so it's not necessarily critical which one you use it's likely more critical what the overall treatment map is and the patient selection uh, and you know whether or not you're treating again a limited area versus more of the subtotal um, approach so one would think that the the primary advantage of focal therapy would be a decrease in short-term and more importantly long-term morbidity do we have enough data to say yes there is decreased morbidity from focal therapy versus radical prostatectomy versus standard radiation therapy great question and you know one of my favorite ways to address this and others like it i i, I really didn't get as much impact as you would think but Everyone knows, of course, Marty Sanda's New England publication on the, uh, on the PROS-QA study. So it was non-randomized, but multiple modalities, surgery, uh, radiation with or without hormones, brachytherapy, all compared with a standard survey called EPIC, or Expanded Prostate Cancer Index. In simplified terms, it, it, it is a Likert-like scale where you ask a patient a question, they sort of circle one through five, the survey translates that into a 100-point scale. So 100 is like perfect function. Zero is, you know, almost virtually no function, severe dysfunction. You can separately measure function and bother, and then you've got scales for urinary, sexual, bowel, et cetera. The important thing I think that came out of that later was a, a follow-up paper where they tried to define what constitutes a clinically significant difference. We all know from even basic statistical training that if you have enough sample size, you can make many very tight comparisons statistically significant, right? I mean, if you got 100,000 people in two arms, you might be able to make a two-point scale difference statistically, you know, with a p-value less than 0.05. So what Marty's group did is then just try to redefine what's clinically significant. They used two different statistical methods I won't detail, but they came up with a table showing that on the EPIC scale, you need roughly a 10 to 12 point difference between two comparisons to be clinically significant. And whereas for urinary, it was like five to seven points. So I bring that up to say that um, there is a lot of data using EPIC or similar surveys. And in surgery, you typically have that, you know, crash and recovery outcomes but i would say that most men decline by 10 to 20 points on the epic scale depending on 
you know, other variables. So that's where you can look at the delta of what a new therapy might offer. I, so I bring that up to say that there, there is a lot of room for improvement in sexual function from standard surgery, even with nerve sparing, as well as radiation, especially if you add the hormonal therapy. So, you know, if you look at Marty's paper in New England, radiation by itself had a less severe side effect difference for sexual function, but radiation with hormones was almost the same curve as prostatectomy. Brachytherapy, if a patient's eligible and has a good treatment center, seems to have the least effect on erectile function. Another point I would make out of that, though, for example, in surgery is most patients heal, at least in our experience, they're right at the edge of that clinically significant window. They basically get back within five or seven points of their baseline. So there's some room for improvement, but not as much, so to speak. So that's one way that someone could look at what are we going to achieve on that. If it's not going to be that, then it could just be your other comment about the timing of it. So for sure, surgical patients decline significantly in the first three months for sexual function. You know, if it takes a year or two or three to get back to that ideal recovery, that, that would be an area where a focal therapy could perform better in a very, you know, statistically valid way of measuring it. What would you say are the biggest dangers or limitations of focal therapy? So an interesting paper in the Journal of Urology last year from the UCLA group, uh, it's a complicated methodology, but they basically took people who, you know, had an MRI and then had radical prostatectomy. They had a fairly elaborate way of basically making like a 3D print kind of cast model of the specimen. And then basically co-registering that with the MRI lesion. So there's a lot of methodologic assumptions about how they did that. But they basically, the punchline on that that's kind of eye-opening was that 80% of the radical prostatectomy tumor volume fell outside of where the MRI told you the lesion was. That's a lot, yeah, 80%. Yes, it is. Now, in a very interesting and very technical, sort of a high-tech you know, letter to the editor, Mark Emberton wrote back and said that, you know, there's a lot of methodologic assumptions you used, and other people have calculated that differently and found the, the discrepancy is less than 10%. So I must admit, I'm not, I haven't put my hands on either one of those methods and couldn't say who's right or wrong. But thematically, that's the big difference is is the MRI actually showing us what's there? I must admit, as a high volume you know, surgeon who sees prostatectomy reports and MRI reports, you know, eight to 10 new ones a week, the, the notion that the MRI is underestimating the tumor volume is that's kind of my daily week. <laughs> Uh, it's very believable and, and you know, how, how, how you define that, I'll leave it for the experts on that. So that, that's kind of the, it's almost tell patients because a lot of patients come in asking about this and you have to caution them that MRI is good at estimating what's going on with the tumor, but it's not precision. If we get to a point where MRI can be a lot more precise in treatment planning, that would certainly change the dynamic. You would still have to contend with 
I guess, two other quick areas I would outline. If my pathologist were standing next to me here, she would caution that the, the more aggressive grade of tumor is not always the largest one. It's usually number one or two. It's much less likely to be the third or fourth largest tumor, but it's not always the dominant tumor volume. So there is the issue of being sure we even know which one to treat if, if you're gonna pick one or if there's only one present. The other one, it's, it's essentially the similar theme and the Europeans again did a, a large consensus paper that's out, basically a meta-analysis on what is the actual number of the false negative rate of an MRI or stated otherwise, if MRI says there's no tumor and then you do surgery, how often is there actually tumor found or, and how much of it is clinically significant? Their clinically significant number was roughly 12%. And that number gets debated all over the point, or all over the place. In our template biopsy program, we see about 20% significant cancer in men biopsied who basically have an equivocal or essentially normal MRI. Other experts say, you know, if you've got better imaging or this, that, or the other, they, they say that that number is less than 5%. So there's not uniform agreement about how often we're missing tumor altogether when MRI shows that. Of course, if MRI is completely negative, it's a little less likely. Well, it's not. I'll take that back. Again, there's different types. In the, in the cryotherapy program John Ward did, for example, we didn't use any imaging necessarily. It was 10 years ago. You just took people with unilateral biopsies and you froze that half of a gland. So that's still in the conversation of what constitutes focal therapy. The more modern concept everyone's talking about is people who have MRI lesions, who've probably had fusion biopsies positive, and then you're gonna go after that lesion with, with one of the strategies we've outlined. So now I'm going to ask you a little bit of a challenging question, but as we always seek to improve treatment for our patients, um, if you had to choose between developing focal therapy versus trying to improve upon outcomes of our current standard therapies, uh, and those that we could be talking efficacy outcomes or we could be talking um, uh, quality of life outcomes. Where do you think the future is? Is do you think the future is more towards focal therapy, or are there things that we can do to improve outcomes of radical prostatectomy and standard radiation? That's that's a great one. Um, in the way, and I I I I think of that in a number of different ways. So I'm I'm going to slightly divert from the question and say that, for example, with with respect to whole gland uh, HIFU, of what's published out there, in the best ways that I can interpret it and compare it to our data at MD Anderson, I would conclude that our brachytherapy results for similar patients is easily 10 to 20% better in oncologic and even quality of life outcomes than what's published in HIFU. Therefore, I have personally have limited enthusiasm for going through a learning curve of doing whole gland HIFU and trying to somehow replace brachytherapy that's been around for a long time. So that's a similar way of analyzing it. But, but your question on focal therapy is different. I think there is an unmet need to take some of the smaller 
favorable intermediate risk patients who clearly have growth potential and now have a somewhat proven or agreed upon, not a contraindication to active surveillance, but they're just not good durable active surveillance patients. Can you select them appropriately, obliterate the index lesion, and essentially convert them to active surveillance patients? I mean, mind you, another way I think of the paradigm of the question is, is any of this focal therapy simplifying my life as a practitioner or simplifying their life as a patient? A lot of the comparisons, I would answer no. So for example, when you compare focal therapy to surveillance, both groups, you're going to have to somehow interpret their PSA number and, and results over time. Both groups probably need follow-up biopsies, follow-up imaging. Um, but I think some patients will like the concept that rather than hang around and wait to need a definitive therapy in five years, can you do something less uh, toxic now, as long as it would be durable? The last thing I would say on the question that I personally don't have strong enough evidence review on, but just a lot of anecdotes is, how good is the salvage therapy? So in that, and that's, that's an important question that we'll address at the AUA course is, you know, if someone gets recommended for focal therapy and they fail it, you know, what now? Have they truly burned a bridge? Have they not burned a bridge? Can you repeat it? What's it like to do robotic surgery after it? I've seen a wide variety of outcomes and data on this. Uh, so it would be important that if you did the focal therapy that there is a suitable backup plan that's not, you know, taking the patient a step backward. Is, is there a suitable backup plan now? Do we know what the best thing to do is if focal therapy fails? Well, you know, people, there are several options. In some of the older patients, I've just done standard radiation. That seems to be workable in the right patient. Um, it all often hinges back to the original question of were they a good candidate to begin with. So if someone who was a, a way too aggressive candidate got done to begin with and they become metastatic, that it, you know, it's almost like a hormone therapy salvage. But if they were a good candidate and maybe they just had a contralateral recurrence, depending on their age, we've radiated them, we've done some surgeries, outcomes are, are certainly varied. I think it's fair to compare that in whole gland HIFU, the results of salvage surgery are not nearly as good as were sort of advertised a long time ago. I think urinary outcomes are okay, but several folks have published series of doing salvage RP after HIFU, and there's clearly going to be more erectile dysfunction. Now, is there less if they've done focal? Again, depends on how much they treated. Uh, there's a lot of variables there that need to get worked out. All right, so John, as we conclude, I'm going to just ask you to give us a few bullet points on the state of focal therapy for the treatment of prostate cancer today. So good, let's do that. And I also kind of almost want to frame it in the way that you challenged us on the committee a couple of years back, which is, you know, again, what should the AUA be putting out there as a message? I think in terms of the treatment setting, I would heavily endorse the idea of it being done on clinical trials, registries, and by folks who are clearly going to be dedicated experts at developing this. So, I mean, it, it doesn't mean it has to be academic. These can be private urologists, academic urologists, as long as they're contributing to the science of it and have dedicated 
you know, time and training to, you know, work out learning curves and that kind of thing, just like you would do for other subspecialty areas. Now, the broader question, though, is should it be taught as a how-to? And I think the answer currently is no. I mean, obviously, if you're going to be a dedicated researcher and expert, then there needs to be training and, and expertise in that. But I think the general urologist basically needs to be trained in the question and in the data and how to talk to patients. So that's actually going to be the emphasis of the AUA course coming up because without a doubt, patients are going to Google surf, you know, these questions, want to know if these are options, want to know if they could be referred to a site that's working on this in a serious manner. Um, and you'll be able to help them navigate should they do it or should they just move on with the standard options. Um, so that's kind of a complex message to get out there, but I think we can and do it by, you know, again, going over all these great points you've asked about patient selection, intervention, imaging, and, you know, what, what needs to happen to uh, move this field forward. Well, that's great, John. Uh, again, I, I, I thank you for uh, taking the time uh, to do this podcast with us. Again, uh, we've been speaking with uh, Dr. John Davis, who is from the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. I also would like to thank our audience um, for listening today. And uh, for more information, uh, you can contact us at university.auanet.org. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you.